I really appreciate when we sing the doxology. It's just a very simple statement of our faith and what the Christian life is about. And as, uh, as it happened in the first service, just as I was making my way up, I remembered a, a thing that happened to me that had to do with the doxology. A few months ago, I was leaving the house to catch the bus to go to work, and just as I stepped out, the doxology popped into my head. This is about 7 in the morning, 7.30 in the morning. And I started to hum it in my head. But by the time I got to the bus stop in about two-minute walk that I have, it had come out from my head into my mouth and my lips. Except that I didn't know that because there was nobody around me. So I get to the bus stop, and there I am singing it away. But I did not know that. So I'm perfectly normal at this point. And then the bus pulls over. And I step onto the bus just as we're singing the last line. I'm singing the last line. We're not, we're not singing the last line. Just as I am singing the last line. And as I step onto the bus, the driver, without skipping a beat, sings the Amen with me. And I thought, what's he doing? <laughs> and then I realized he was singing with me. <laughs> I've never seen him again. Maybe he wanted to get away from all the crazy church people. He wanted a normal crowd on his bus. So, and it wasn't Andy and it wasn't Dave. So I have no idea who this bus driver is. But, but I know that he knows the doxology and he knows how to sing it. So, so in any case, it's a, it's a beautiful reminder of who God is and what, uh, how we are to adore him and worship him. I also want to just make a quick point, And I want to thank you for your kindness. Because last time when I was up here almost a month ago, uh, I went a little beyond the time that was allotted to me, and uh, a little beyond. And you were very kind and very generous, and you stayed. And you have stayed this morning after seeing me up here. So that's very nice. And I, I have to tell you, the pastoral staff have been fantastic. Well, actually, Pastor Kevin and Pastor Doug have been very fantastic and very kind. But Pastor Terry has taken every opportunity to remind me of my time management. And... Uh, <laughs> And then he laughs every time he reminds me as though he is taking some kind of a pleasure in, uh, in doing that. But, but I've also developed a, an appreciation for people who go to mission strips and come back and they're given two and a half minutes to share. Uh, what a challenge. You know, I was challenged with 35 minutes. Um, so I, I appreciate that. So today we are in the first Sunday of 2013 and... First Sundays, first days, firsts of anything are kind of remarkable and memorable. And today also is one of those Sundays when we're not tied into a series. We are in the middle of Mark, but we've taken a bit of a break from the Gospel of Mark. And a Sunday like this and the two past Sundays where Pastor Doug has preached give the speaker a lot of freedom in choosing or in following where God wants us to go on, uh, in our message. It also presents a challenge for that exact same reason, where do you go on a Sunday like this? And so, as is typically the case with me, it wasn't probably until a few days ago that I had an idea of where to go this Sunday. Um, and I hope that, and I know that this is the right thing. I know that this is the right thing. Many churches would probably do an inspirational sermon. How can you change the world this year? Uh, somebody could stand up and, and preach on a motivational message, you know, how, how to lose the most pounds this year, 
uh, probably according to scripture. Um, or, or it could be any number of topics. But let me read to you something that A.W. Tozer said, and that will set the stage for what we want to talk about this morning. This is what he wrote in one of his, his devotionals. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has not done deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic." End quote. I believe what Tozer is saying is very true of Christians as well. Little by little, and not deliberately, we develop this completely unaware sense of a God who is not who he is. Our version of God becomes diluted over time. And that is a slippery slope. It becomes a tragic situation when we're completely unaware of the fact that our image of God has been compromised. It has been made to fit the trials and tribulations in our lives. It has been made to fit everything else around us. And somehow, we take God and reduce Him to fit whatever it is that our life looks like today. So what is the best way to start a new year? One of the, one of the traditions in our home when I was growing up uh, was there was the tradition every single year that I, I stayed at my parents' place. When I was little, I remember being woken up just a few minutes before midnight on, on New Year's Eve. And then our dad, my dad would pray to finish one year and to start the next year. So he would pray over that midnight timeline. And so one of the things that I had instilled in me was that moments like the new beginnings that we see at the beginning of a year are ones that we need to present to God. And the most worthy thing to be thinking about when we start something fresh the most worthy person that we need to be focusing on is God Himself. There cannot be another topic that is more holy and more worthy to be discussed as we start a new year. Why is it so important? Because it is the very foundation on which we stand. It is the very foundation on which our lives are formed. It is the very foundation on which we stood as 2012 ended and it is the very foundation on which we ought to stand as we start 2013. And so while every word in the Bible is worthy of our attention, and there are people in the Bible whose lives are worthy of, worthy of our attention, it is only the person of God that is worthy of all our attention. And so this morning, we're going to look at the triune nature of God. Three persons in one God. And it is a, it, the message this morning is going to be probably very academic, very intellectual. But I pray and I, my desire for this morning is that through that intellectual discussion that we will engage in and we look at the scriptures, we will be reminded of how magnificent God is, 
how far above our understanding God is and how much his love is for us that he chooses to commune with us and as we start the new year that we would actually look forward to being in reverence and awe of this God there are a number of foundational faiths faith statements that Christians believe in and one of those is if I can just get help or oh, there we go there we go one of those foundational statements that we believe in is that there is only one God this is the crux of our faith there is only one God every Christian believer must understand and believe there is only one God he is alive he is living he is eternal he is incomprehensible he is wise he is all love he is all-powerful he is present everywhere he has been from eternity and he will live beyond the, t the end of time he is the only God that exists and there is only one God that is the crux of our faith and the Bible repeatedly affirms that when it when it addresses God throughout the scriptures there are times when the Bible uses the Hebrew word L when it talks about about God L is the singular form of the word God as most of you know but then the Bible qualifies God's characteristic or God's presence by attaching some kind of an attribute to him and so we read God is El Olam which is the everlasting God or he is the El Elohe Israel which is God the God of Israel or he is El Shaddai we were familiar with that he is the God Almighty or he is El Elyon which is God most high Melchizedek was a priest to the God most high and so the Bible every time it mentions God as El and qualifies him is affirming the fact that there is only one God and that's the God that we ought to believe in but then God himself speaks of that and he speaks of himself in the singular noun and the singular pronoun in Exodus chapter 13 verse 14 where Moses meets God at the burning bush God introduces himself to Moses and he says I am who I am he did not say we are who we are he said I am who I am and so this intentional singular introduction of God affirms the fact that God is telling us that there is only one of him there aren't multiple gods that exist or that are with him he says to Moses that when you go and see the people tell him tell them that I am has sent me to you that is his identity that is God's identity he is a singular God he is one God who exists and there is none other in Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 and then in verse 7 this is where God is giving the Ten Commandments to the Israelites and he starts by saying I am the Lord your God I am the Lord your God not we are but I am and he affirms that he is one and then in verse 7 he says you shall not take the name not the names the name of the Lord your God in vain one God one name only one God 
And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A public proclamation that the God of the Bible is one. And so that is one of the first and foundational beliefs that a Christian has. There is another belief, and that is that there are three persons in God. When we look at the three persons in God, it introduces the idea of plurality within God. And so we understand when we look at three persons that even though God is one, there are three persons that exist within God. And so just as the Bible uses the word El to identify God as one God, it also uses the plural of the same word Elohim to identify that there are multiple persons within one God. And so the plurality of God comes out right through the scriptures, right at us, right in the first verse of the Bible. When you read Genesis 1-1, it reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the word God there is the plural, Elohim. And so right from the very first verse, God wants to communicate the fact that there is plurality within him. He is El Shaddai. He is the single, almighty, one God. But he is also Elohim, which means that there is plurality within his existence, within his being. We also see that in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us. And once again, we see the use of a plural pronoun to identify God's character. Or in Genesis 3.22, God says, Behold, a man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And again, the scripture constantly reminds us of the plural nature of God's being. And so if we take these two statements and put them side by side, we see that God proclaims that he is one and he is plural. But then he takes us into a deeper understanding of who he is. And from a plurality, which doesn't have a number associated with it, he speaks to us and tells us that God exists in Trinity. And so the Trinity within one God is seen most clearly probably at the baptism of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. When Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens open up, and the Holy Spirit comes out of the heaven, descends upon Jesus Christ, alights on him, and then God the Father speaks and acknowledges his Son. And so we see all three persons in the Trinity present at this key moment in mankind's history. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, in the Great Commission, Jesus verbalizes that Trinity when he says, Go therefore and baptize everyone in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we see that this Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are crucial for us to understand the identity of God. And then in the first letter of John, chapter, verse, chapter 5, verse 7, For there are three that bear witness to heaven, witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And of course the Word 
is Logos, which is John 1.1. 1, 1. The Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that refers to God the Son. And so again, we see repetition, just a reminder that there are three persons within one God. And so the two statements, there is only one God, and there are three persons in God, when they stand alone, it's not a problem. Because if we just make the statement that there is one God, the Christian faith can be reconciled with a lot of other monotheistic religions, like Islam, for example, that believes in one deity at the top. And so there is no conflict. Or if we take the other statement, which says that there are three persons in God, or three deities, um, we can reconcile with many of the polytheistic religions, like Hinduism, where there are multiple gods with multiple accountabilities and roles. The problem occurs when we join the two. And the Christian faith, just with that addition, becomes completely unique. The Christian God becomes completely unique. Because there is no other faith that makes the statement that there is one God and there are three persons in that one God. It is this faith that distinguishes Christianity from every other faith. There isn't any other faith that believes in a God like that. And so automatically, our God becomes different from anyone else that we can think of or that, that we can research about or find out about. Our God is one God, and within Him, there are three persons. Now maybe by faith we can accept that. By doing research within the scriptures, we can come to an understanding that that is true, and we believe that. But then, it just gets a little more complex. Because the Bible also tells us that the Father is also God. He is fully God. And so is the Son, and so is the Holy Spirit. And so the three persons that exist within the person of God, each are fully and completely God. So God the Father is God, the Son is also God, and the Holy Spirit is also God. What does that mean? Well, it means that any attribute that we assign to God himself, his all-powerful nature, his presence everywhere, his unchanging nature, um, the fact that he is eternal, every single one of those is completely applicable to every one of the three persons in the Trinity. So God the Father is eternal, as is God the Son, as is God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is omnipotent, as is the Son, as is the Holy Spirit. Now it doesn't mean that each one of those makes up one-third of the God. It doesn't mean that when Jesus Christ was on earth in human form, there was only two-thirds of God left up in heaven because one-third was on earth. That's the mystery. God remains complete. And the removal of one of the persons does not take away from the completeness of God. There is nothing that can be added to who God is, and there is nothing that can be taken away from who God is. And so the mystery of the Trinity becomes a little more complex for our puny minds. It gets even more complex when we say that 
The Father is not the Son, and He is not the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Father, and He is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and not the Son. So how could it be that they are all equal, they are all God, and yet they are all different? I don't think we can explain that. I don't think we can understand that. And quite frankly, even, if, even when we're in heaven, there is no way for us to fully grasp what it means to have a God who has triune nature. So what, is, what Trinity isn't? It is not three distinct gods. It is not tritheism. It is not three gods who work as a team and then they negotiate and work out a deal and then make things happen. It is not three distinct gods. It is three persons in one God. It is not three modes of one God. It is not as though this was actually a teaching that was prevalent at some time that God the Father existed before Jesus Christ came to this earth, at which point God the Father changed into God the Son, and after the ascension, God the Son changed into God the Holy Spirit. So there is only one God, but He only exists in one form at any given time. This is the modal model of the Trinity, and it is wrong. It is not correct. And it is definitely not God and Mary and Jesus. The Trinity, in its simplest form, is this. It is one God who exists completely, eternally, in perfect harmony, and without compromise in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each one of those words is key. God the Father is completely God. God the Son is completely God. And God the Holy Spirit is completely God. Each one of them within the Trinity, within the Godhead, have lived eternally. Each one of them works in perfect harmony with the other two. So when God the Father created the plan of salvation and He said, Son, you will be the perfect sacrifice to reconcile mankind to God, there wasn't a negotiation that went on between the two of them. It was a perfect harmony that results in God's work. And there is no compromise because they all work in a perfect relationship with each other. Now, many have tried to find examples of the Trinity in, in the universe, in creation. And we've heard stories of the shamrock leaf and, and, uh, and so on. And one of the few, the egg, for example, the egg has three parts, the shell, the white, and the, and the yolk. Um, it, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit because the shell in itself cannot be called the full egg. You take away one part of any of those three, and the egg ceases to be what it is. And so that's not an attribute. That's not how, the way how God works. That's not the way how his triune nature is described to us. And so that example falls short. We've also heard of the water example. Water exists as a liquid, as ice, or, or as vapor. Uh, can exist in three different states, uh, but only in one state at a time. So it is a modal model of the Trinity. You know, you can either have a, a molecule of water in frozen state, or vapor state, or liquid state, but not all three together at the same time. And so that example falls short as well. 
and some of you intellectuals are probably sitting there saying, well, James D. Kennedy said that time is a perfect example of that. Or the dimensions of space are a perfect example of that, the XYZ coordinates. You know, all I'm going to say is, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Because there is nothing in this universe that can mimic or present a picture of the Trinity. There is nothing that shows what that attribute looks like because it is so unique to God that there is nothing in His creation that can actually show us what it is. And that's what makes God who He is. So we can try our best to come up with ideas and examples of what it looks like in nature, but why waste time? because there is nothing you can find that will fit that. Now, there are roles and relationships within the Trinity. We've talked about the three different persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm trying to stay away from calling the Son Jesus deliberately, because one of the failures or something that I have faltered with is that when I call God the Son, Jesus Christ, I limit myself to thinking of Him in just 33 years. I think of God the Son as having an existence that spans 33 years of his earthly life. And so when I address him directly or intentionally as God the Son, it's a constant reminder for me that he is God who is part of the Trinity. And so there are different roles within this Trinity. And we're going to take a quick run through some of the scriptures that identify what those roles are and who does what. One of the things that we see God the Father doing in the Trinity is that He is the ultimate source of creation. He is the designer or the chief architect, perhaps, if you want to call Him that, of everything that has been created. He is the one that decided what the universe was going to look like. He decided what the creation was going to look like, what the animals, the garden, everything that has been created has been created by God the Father. He is the ultimate source of that. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, where it reads this, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. So right in the scriptures, we're told that it is the Father who is the source of all things that have been created. Want to keep your eyes on 1 Corinthians passage because we're going to come back to that in a minute. But also in Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, this is a scene in the heaven. The 24 elders are seated around the throne. And this is what they say. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. And so how do we know that the one seated on the throne is the Father, because when you read the entire book of Revelation, you notice that the slain lamb is presented as a separate person in those scenes, and the Holy Spirit is presented as a separate person in those scenes. And it is only God the Father who is never shown or presented as anything else except the Lord seated on the throne. And so we know that this image refers to God the Father in heaven. The other thing that God the Father does is that He 
has the absolute authority within the Trinity. When we hear the word authority, we automatically associate some negative stuff with it, you know, uh, resentment, uh, chain of command, the person in authority must make everything happen, they must make people do what they want them to do, but that's not the case in the Trinity because we've already established that in the Trinity, the three persons work in perfect harmony and in complete harmony with each other. And so God the Father, who has the authority within the Trinity, his role is to plan out the works to be carried out. His role, as we saw, was to be the creator, to be the source for creation. But even the Holy Spirit and God the Son know the authority that God the Father has. And so they're in perfect acceptance and perfect understanding of the authority that the Father possesses. And so we see that when Jesus taught the, his disciples to pray, he said, this is how we pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God the Son is constantly giving authority and acknowledging the authority of God the Father in his communication even on earth. Jesus goes on in the, math, in the Gospel of John where he says that I have come down from the heaven not to do my will but the will of the one who sent me. And the sending part in that verse also implies the authority. So it is God the Father who has the authority to send God the Son to earth to carry out the work of salvation. And then in chapter 4 of the same gospel, this is where Jesus was sitting down with the Samaritan woman and the disciples came back and they brought food back and they said to Jesus, are you hungry? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. And so God the Son fully understands the authority that is given to God the Father. And he is perfectly fine in submitting to that. And so the role within the Trinity that the Father has is that he is the source of all creation, supreme authority. He's the initiator of mankind's salvation. He's the initiator of all of Jesus' works on the earth. And we see that happening all the time. When Jesus was going to perform a miracle, you would often see him standing up and praying to the Father before he would actually do the miracle. He gives honor to the Son, as we see in case of the baptism or in the Mount of Transfiguration. And the other thing about God the Father is that no one has seen him. He is one of the three persons in the Trinity, and he is the one who has not been seen by anyone. So I'll throw a question at you, and you can, if we don't get to the answer to that before the end of my time this morning, you can probably do some research. So if God the Father has not been seen by anyone, then what are all the references about in the Old Testament where God came down from heaven and walked with people and talked with people and gave instructions to people? How did that come to be? So you can do some research on that. What is the role of the Son? Well, the Son is the agent through whom all creation is made or created. So we looked at God the Father and we, we decided or we found out that it is from him that everything was created. But in the same passage in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, the second half of that verse reads, the Lord Jesus Christ through whom all, came, all things came and through whom we live. 
And so we see that the two persons in the Trinity work together for creation. It is God the Father from whom all things came, and it is God the Son through whom all things came. In John verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And of course in Colossians it says, for by him all things were created. And it goes on to say that all things were created by him and for him. And in him all things hold together. And so we see that God the Son has a very key role in holding the creation together. The other thing that God the Son does within the Trinity is that he perfectly submits to the authority of the Son, of the Father. He does not question, he does not negotiate, he does not try to come out on top of whatever it is God, that God's, God the Father's will is, but he knows from eternity past that he submits to the authority of God the Father. He is here to not do his own will, but to do the will of the one who sent him. Or in John chapter 14, I obey the Father no matter what he asks me to do. And so we see a very humble submission to the authority of God. And of course, this passage in Philippians, where we are reminded that God, the Son, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The plan was created by God the Father that the Son would die on the cross and the Son submitted to him in complete humility and humbleness. And so we have God the Son who has many attributes. He is the mediator between mankind and God. He glorifies the Father. He is the sender for the Holy Spirit. And he is the only person in the Trinity that we have seen as a person, as a human being. He is the only person in the Trinity who has interacted with humanity in the form of a human being. The third person in the Trinity is God the Holy Spirit, and He is the enabler for carrying out the work, the work of the Father. Many evangelical churches and Christians even somehow end up putting the Holy Spirit on the back burner, if you will. He is, yeah, he's part of the Trinity. But we don't give him the same respect and same awe and same regard that we give to God the Father and definitely give to God the Son. The truth of the matter is that when we do that, we are, in fact, not showing full respect for God because God the Holy Spirit is fully God. And when we discard him, we are basically discarding God. So our respect for the Holy Spirit is paramount in our relationship with God. The other mistake we made when it comes to the Holy Spirit is that somehow we, we figure that he became active after the ascension of Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus said, I will send the Comforter, I will send the Counselor, I will send the, the Holy Spirit, we think that that's when the Holy Spirit became active in the lives of humanity. And that's not true either. Because as soon as you go into the Old Testament, you see reference upon reference of the Spirit of the Lord coming down upon people that God was choosing to carry out His work. Especially in Judges. This is just when God was establishing the hierarchy within His people, and, see, and He established Judges. So the first judge that He establishes 
was Othniel. I think he's one of the first. He was uh, Caleb's nephew. And when he has been selected to save the people of Israel, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And we see that repeated over and over again for many of the other judges as well. Or when Samuel went out to anoint David, it says that when David was anointed, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. And so we see that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, was fully active even in the Old Testament days. And in Isaiah, of course, the prophetic word that Jesus chose to start his teaching ministry when he stood in the temple and he said, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. So we say that the, the Holy Spirit is the enabler of all the works that, that God the Father prepares. And we see that happening in the life of Jesus Christ on earth. If you look at the chronological Bible, there isn't a single miracle recorded by Jesus before his baptism. And the most significant thing that happened at the baptism was the affirmation from the Father and the fact that the Holy Spirit came down and rested on him. And so we believe that he was filled with the Holy Spirit that, at that time as a man and carried out all the works that God had prepared for him in the power through the Holy Spirit because that's the role of the Holy Spirit. It is a, it is a mistake that we make when we compartmentalize the three persons in God. When we say that God the Father existed from so-and-so time, God the Son from so-and-so period, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for a different period. Because right from the first verse in the scripture, in the beginning, God created. When God talks about the plurality, he is talking about the fact that all three persons in the Trinity were present at that time. And so the three of them have existed together from the beginning of time. So the Holy Spirit is the enabler. He counsels the Father, as Isaiah points out. He glorifies the Son, and he sanctifies the believers. That is his role. And he appears in the scriptures in the form of a dove or in the form of fire, but not as a person. So he is visible at times, but not in the human form. God the Son is visible in human form and no other form. And God the Father is not visible at all. And so the three of them interact with humanity in completely different ways. Well, this is just a surface that we have scratched, basically, of, of the Trinity. Why is it important for us to, to focus on, on God I'm going to read another, another quote for you and as, we, as we conclude the morning. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We tend by a secret law 
of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that com composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, end quote. It is a worthy topic to ponder upon who our God is. Because when we ponder upon God, it tells us who we are and it affects our worship. It is critical for us to understand who God is. Last weekend I was in Toronto, I was attending a funeral of a, of a man who was very, very, very close to our family. Um, he had turned 90, he would have turned 91 in March. And he had lived a life of faith. He was a theologian by all accounts. He, was, he had his doctorate in, in theology, had taught, had, uh, he was an intellectual. And I, I had a great deal of respect for who he was. And about 15 years ago, I met him. Um, and he, he mentioned to me that he was going to do some research on who Jesus Christ is. And this is after living a life of faith. He wanted to find out who Jesus Christ was. But he was not going to use the scripture in his research. He was going to use all the other sources around him to figure out who Jesus Christ was. And so I sat with him and I, I just questioned him, why, why would you do that? Well, he just wanted to know. He wanted to know if what he believed was true. And I had an uneasy feeling about this. But in our culture, when an elder speaks, you don't question. And so I walked away. He did this research for almost four and a half, five years. And at the end of it, he came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was just a man. And there was nothing to life that required the presence of a Savior. And so for the last 10 years of his life, he lived rejecting the God that he had served for 75 years of his life. And so when I sat in the funeral home and I could see his body lying in front of me, I found myself repeatedly praying and asking God if he had just given him one more chance, one more chance before he closed his eyes and his heart beat for the last time and he drew his last breath, one more chance before that for him to have said, I repent and I acknowledge that you are God. And as I posed that question over and over again in my prayer, the Holy Spirit said, he had so many chances. He had so many chances. He grew up in a Christian home in a Muslim country. He went to a Christian school. He went to a Christian college. He went to a Christian university. He got his doctorate. Everything was there for him to stay true to that faith. And at the end of his life, he decided to let go of the book that tells us about who God is. And he lost his faith.
Now somewhere in the back of my head, I still wonder if he did come to that recognition and that repentance at the end of his days. But we won't know that until we get to heaven. Don't let that be your end. Don't let that be your end. God is awesome. He is real. And He loves you. And all three persons within the Trinity work together so that you can be reconciled with God. And that once you have accepted the sacrifice of the Son that was planned by the Father, then the Spirit works in your life so you are more conformed to the likeness of the Son. We're going to take part in communion. In a moment, I'm just going to ask the servers to come up and take their seats. But as we conclude our conversation about who God is and His triune nature, I just want to remind you that He loves you very much. And the fact that we're celebrating this communion is the biggest remembrance we can do of the biggest sacrifice that anyone has ever given for you. And so as we conclude, we're just going to remember the sacrifice. We're going to remember a God who loves us very much. The elements that are present here represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, if you have not come to that decision this morning, then please feel free to let the elements go by. Please don't feel obligated that you need to partake in receiving these elements. Feel free to let those go by and use the time this morning to, to find out why, what's holding you back from entering into that relationship with God. And if you're here this morning as a child of God, because of the work that the Son has done, then be thankful. Be thankful and be appreciative of the work that God has done so you can be reconciled with Him. I'm going to ask Raj if you can pray for the bread.